It's the Basketball Hall of Fame's Legends Podcast. I'm Kyle Belanger. Joining me today is a 2014 Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame enshrinee. He is one of the most influential commissioners in American sports history. His 30 years at the helm of the NBA ran from 1984 till 2014. He oversaw the establishment of seven new NBA teams and relocated six others. In addition, he is also credited with the global and gender proliferation of the game we love so much. He is Commissioner David Stern. Commissioner Stern, thanks so much for joining me this morning. I am so delighted to be with you, Kyle. Commissioner, I want to start actually sort of appropriately by talking a little bit about the NBA draft and the draft lottery, because in in your tenure, uh, we saw the, the, the establishment of the NBA draft and the draft lottery as appointment television. And I'm wondering if in those 30 years, those 29 lotteries and 30 drafts, is there one moment that you experienced on that podium at that dais that maybe epitomizes what you were hoping to do with that event, with that moment? You know, it's interesting, Kyle. There's no one moment. I just was stunned that this lottery that we had started because we needed a lottery system, uh, because of concerns that just having a two-team coin flip, coin flip wasn't adequate. But I was just always stunned when the lottery got these very high ratings and it became appointment viewing. There was no one aha moment. Uh, in fact, it got to be sufficiently routine that I stepped down from doing the lottery and wanted Adam Silver to do it. Uh, because it... Uh, uh, you know, it was just something that had to be done. And uh, I, 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 I loved it because it meant that we could keep our fans interested in one more aspect of our game. And it was only a prelude to the draft. That's so artfully put because so much, I think, uh, well, maybe just American sports in general in the last 35 years has become a race to see which leagues can turn it into a 12-month event. And I think the lottery was the first step, maybe the first salvo fired by any of the four major American sports. I Yes, but remember, it was done normally during the playoffs, so we still had a finals yet to come. <laughs> And then we had a draft yet to come, and then we, uh, you know, we had a free agent signing period yet to come. And I think the thing that I find most interesting is that the lottery and the draft, which are very well covered, lead to what we call, I guess, the Las Vegas Summer League or the Orlando Summer League or the Utah Summer League. So we wound up having sort of our own little, what basically used to call the hot stove league. Uh, our season winds up extending through the month of July. And uh, that's pretty good. We take 10 months, but actually with international expansion and the like, it's, uh, it is getting very close to a year-round situation. Which for hoop heads like you and I is an awfully good place to be. So I'm wondering when you took yeah <laughs> when you took over as commissioner uh, from of course from Larry O'Brien uh, the the league was in a and the sport was in a very different place than it is today. Do you remember what Commissioner David Stern in 1984? What was your first to do list like? Do you remember what was atop that list? You know we had a list that said. 
we had to get through the day. First and foremost, because I was, you know, I, I have trouble separating because Larry O'Brien was a very fair and great delegator. So I was doing a lot as executive vice president. Indeed, I was doing a lot from the day I became general counsel in 78. But one issue was always the, uh, the collective bargaining agreement that we executed in 83 and then the anti-drug agreement, which we did a little bit later in the fall of 83. And so when I became commissioner, when I went around meeting teams and fans, it was most important to tell them that we and the players had addressed an issue that our fans wanted them to address. Two issues. One, a salary cap and the ability, maybe it wasn't a cap then, but it's how, yes, a collective bargaining agreement that took care of our players and yeah, it was a salary cap actually, and an anti-drug agreement that was going to work. That was a really an employee assistance program with education, uh, you know, with uh, some sense of uh, sympathy for players, but also a hard out that throws them out if they don't come forward. So we, and I think that was very important to demonstrate to our fans and our players that we were working to uh, improve the game dramatically. Indeed, indeed. And your tenure also, as I hinted to in the intro, oversaw a pair of significant expansions in the game, of course, across gender lines and across oceans. Um, I, I want to start with the WNBA. Uh, that was, you know, a decade and change into your tenure, and it's now 20 plus years old. And we see the growth of the women's game domestically. We see the stars. But what were those early meetings like, trying to convince uh, the league brass, the, the other owners, to to buy in on a new venture like that, that had, had yet to, it had been tried many times and succeeded at a pretty significant level, but nothing like the aspirations that the NBA had when it created the WNBA. What were those early discussions like? Well, actually, they were easier than you might think. We had a hardcore group that said, yes, I'm in, because we sold it internally in a way that said, here's something that's going to expand your local fan base as well as our national fan base. Here's something that's going to give your building something to have in the summertime and therefore you're building some employees, more dates to have. And here's something that will have your regional sports channel uh, have the ability to to have your programming in the summertime. And without sort of saying quite that way, we'll eat into baseball summertime audience because people who are basketball fans might be looking for more. And, and so the first eight was easy when we launched. It was not a, not an issue at all. It's so fantastic. Um, and, uh, and, and we were sort of feeling our oats. We didn't realize how hard it was going to be <laughs> because the first couple of years were just so easy. We managed to get all the sponsors that the NBA had to sort of accept that we would deliver, and, they, and we did. Uh, it got harder in the mid years. We overexpanded it a bit, and then we pulled it back. Uh, but it's uh, something I'm very proud of. And I was just looking at something that said the development league, which is something else that we did, is going to have 26 teams next year. So those two domestic innovations are uh, are, ex- are expansions of a type of which I'm very proud. 
as a w as a WNBA and developmental league fan myself, living in the Springfield, Mass area, I gotta say that they are domestically speaking two of the great innovations of the last thirty years as well. So now your international growth. Uh, was also seminal. Everyone always thinks about, you know, the obvious, Tony Parker, Yao, Dirk. But this was about more than just the most obvious superstars. Can you can you talk about the overseas push and, and why basketball makes the makes this jump better than any other North American sport? Well, let me say that we were lucky. Basketball has been an Olympic sport since 1936. And... Actually, in the 36 Olympics, I've I've learned China, which was more or less closed, actually sent a team. So we had the benefit of a sport that was acknowledged on a global basis uh, very early. And so, um, you know, we actually, actually, I think the Chinese think they invented it (laughs) because Dr. McNaismith went there after he invented it here and was a uh, a person who was pushing uh, the sport a bit. So against that backdrop, we began experimenting with respect to international competitions uh, by inviting teams here and sending teams there. And almost everything we tried turned out successfully. So we said, okay, let's keep pushing. And more and more we became persuaded that our sport had the opportunity and the ability to grow on a global basis. And each new technological development played in our favor. We used to have something called facts back that would uh, cause, you know, the media someplace would send you a fax and you would fax back to them the requested information they wanted. Of course, that became quaint when the internet started because now you could publish things and just make it available on a media only section. And then we, uh, you know, we used to send out three ring, three ring sort of pamphlets each week to tell everyone what the week's results were. Of course, now you just put it on, uh, on your website and it's globally distributed. And so every new development was something that, was playing in our favor, including once uh, social media came uh, because the number of likes and followers of the NBA in non-U.S. markets was getting close to 50%. So it just sort of took off in a way, and we were determined to take advantage of it, and that's why we have probably a close to a dozen offices outside the U.S., each focusing on the business of the NBA or the game of the NBA. It's about servicing the media in a way we've become used to outside the U.S., making sure that the televising of our games in the 215 countries and 47 languages are done correctly, that they're rightly positioned, that they're correctly promoted, that they're scheduled at the right time and dealing with the uh, apparel of the NBA, and also dealing with the game itself, clinics for referees, for kids, for uh, uh, for coaches, and we had great allies in that push by the name of Nike and Adidas and Under Armour, 
uh, and ultimately the Chinese brands that became involved as well. So there was a collective buildup of effort to grow our game on a global basis, and it's taken root. Commissioner Stern, one last question for you. As we wrap up here on the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame's Legends of the Game podcast, what does it mean for you to be working with the Hall of Fame at this stage in your life? I think that uh, the Hall of Fame, by design, is a place that brings all aspects of our sport together. We made a judgment 30-some-odd years ago that this was an enterprise that we wanted to join in with that included the pros, included the colleges, included the high schools, including international. We thought that the inclusive way to go was the best way to go for our sport. It, it, it sort of parallels the way we try to make our, our own league our own leagues as inclusive as possible. And we're delighted, and I'm delighted to be working with this inclusive organization with its great new building and new building renovation plans to further grow and recognize our sport in a best possible way. He is a 2014 Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame enshrinee, 30 years at the helm of the NBA. He is, of course, Commissioner David Stern. Commissioner Stern, thank you so much. I appreciate you sincerely. Thank you, Kyle.